0: Hey, this is Pastor Spencer with Racine Bible Church. You're listening to a sermon from a Sunday morning. Now in the introduction to the sermon, what they taught me in class, the first 60 seconds of the sermon, you're supposed to say something startlingly contemporary to draw everybody in. And in the introduction of this sermon, I'm going to start with a very boring quote from a very technical commentary about the intricacies of the Greek language. And as I read this commentary this week, I highlighted this sentence. James' concern in using these particular linguistic constructions in this chapter seems to arise from the violent quarrels that were shaking and dividing the church. Maybe you see why I highlighted that sentence. When I read that sentence in that commentary, I flipped back to the front of it, that that commentary on the Greek text was written sometime in the early 90s. James wrote this epistle sometime in the first century after Jesus, uh, you know, ministered here on the earth. And yet Pastor James wrote this chapter and that Greek commentary explained that the very Greek construction in this chapter arises from one issue. That there was angry, uncontrolled, harmful kind of spark to tinder, wildfire relationship ruining kind of speech happening in the church. And when James wrote this, the only kind of speech was person to person. There was no telephone. People had thumbs, but they didn't yet use them to text. There was no social media, no Facebook, When we have arguments in the church today, we have them on our Facebook wall so that 313 friends, some of whom aren't even believers, can kind of see how we're at war with each other with our words. And beloved, this ought not to be the case. A lot has been said about 2020. Too much has been said about 2020. But it certainly seems to me, as I would guess that it seems to you, one thing about 2020 is we have had about 8 to 11 years worth of arguments in this one year. And we haven't even gotten to Tuesday yet. So many things that we have disputed with each other about. And, and it's okay to argue about government overreach and masks and election and social justice. There's, there, there, are, there are important points to be made about those things, but in so many of our quote-unquote discussions, more accurately labeled arguments, have we sinned with our tongue? We just finished James chapter 2 last week, and the theme of James chapter 2 was how faith has to show up in works. And now in James chapter 3, James says words are works. In fact, words are perhaps the most common form of works. And if your faith doesn't show up in your words, which are the most common form of works, then maybe you don't have true faith at all. The thought flow for this paragraph is that in verses 1 and 2, there's a warning That if you're a teacher, ha ha ha, if you're a teacher, that means you talk a lot and you're going to be judged for all the talking that you do. And then in verses 3 through 8, there's a warning that the tongue is incredibly explosive and dangerous. And then in verses 9 through 12, there's a warning that the tongue can reveal a divided, unstable heart. And so we see James chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they're so large and they're driven by such strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. Every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the image and likeness of God. And from the same mouth come blessing, and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring for, bore, pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. I'm just going to make three straightforward points from this text about how much help we need. Point number one, all of us need all the help we can get With our tongues. All of us need all the help we can get with our mouths. The tongue, James says, is the tip of the iniquity iceberg. The tongue, James says, is the spark of the wildfire of sin in our lives. And so, your battle for vocal holiness, your struggle for verbal holiness. For vocal Christ-likeness is going to be the longest-running struggle and in some ways the most important struggle of your life. James uses the word we in verse 2. For we all stumble in many ways. He's on his way with the rest of us. He has his struggles with the rest of us. I have mine and you have yours. It is, this is not an unusual occurrence for me to be able to say to you what I'm saying right now. This week, after a discussion with a couple of our elders, the day after that discussion, I had to go back to one of our elders and say, you know, I disagreed with you in that discussion we were having. I just want to reaffirm my esteem for you. And I just want to double check that even though we don't agree about this matter, we are confident in our love for each other. I had to do that this week, not because I was preaching on James 3, but because I have to do that almost every week. And so do you. We all need all the help we can get here. James says what the rest of the Bible says, that there is hardly a sin more pervasive than sins of speech. There's hardly a human failing more commonly failed in than failure to control the tongue. If you were going to make check marks about what a bad person somebody was, you could make a lot of them just based on her or his words. And the Proverbs are in hearty agreement with James chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Proverbs 10, verse 19, where there are many words, remember this one? Proverbs 10, verse 19, where there are many words, transgression is unavoidable. Unavoidable. Ah. Huh be awesome to have a Bible verse that would be like, success is unavoidable. Doing great is unavoidable. This Bible verse says transgression is unavoidable. When there are many words. Proverbs 10, 19, when there are many words, transgression is unavoidable, but the one who restrains his lips is wise. Proverbs 13, verse three, the one who guards his mouth preserves his life. The one who opens wide his mouth comes to, to destruction, Proverbs 13, 3. When the apostle Paul says in Romans 1 and 2 and 3 that we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, when he capstones that argument that trails its way through chapters 1 and 2 and 3, he capstones it in Romans 3, verses 13 and 14 by saying that our throat is an open grave grave. And when he says that in Romans 3, he is quoting from Psalm 5 and Psalm 10. You can't get away from this theme in Scripture, Old Testament, and New. James says in verse 2, we all stumble in many ways. There's a very old saying that has been just as true uh, through all the centuries that it has been uttered. This old proverb simply says this, the excuse of ongoing weakness is the unhappy possession of every man and woman on the earth. Ongoing weakness is the unhappy possession of every man and woman on the earth. We all stumble in this way. None of us is sinless. First John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we make God a liar. And if we say we have no sin with our tongue, well, that's just the most ridiculous statement ever. To never sin with your speech would mean, verse 2, that you were the perfect person able to bridle your whole body. I wonder, I wonder, knowing who wrote this, James, and knowing who his brother, his earthly brother was, James doesn't placard the fact that the Lord Jesus was his earthly brother. And yet I wonder that the person who wrote this verse is one of the only people ever on this little rock that revolves around the sun to spend 30 years with a person who never sinned with his tongue. Jesus is the only human being who committed no sin, nor was any guile found in his speech. James says, if we can control our tongue, then we are perfect, able to bridle the whole body. Perfect in James' context, I think a lot of it has to do with James 1, four, not being double-minded, not being too sold. That's a, a key theme in James. So it's being able to have that maturity where I'm no longer constantly uh, at war with myself, but I'm, but I'm, I'm set toward godliness and Christ-likeness. To be perfect is to be conformed to the image of Christ. You know, Romans 8 is this like, it says he f- those he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified. It says there that the, that the reason is that Jesus Christ might be the firstborn among many souls who are conformed to his image. To become like Christ is to become perfect. This is what God's about in our ongoing sanctification. And so James says that we all stumble in many ways, but if anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. Look at the last half of verse 2, able also to bridle his whole body. Essentially he's saying, if you can do this, you can do anything. You can do if you could do this, you could do anything. And the this is controlling your tongue. This tiny little muscle that everybody has. If you can do this, you can do anything. Commentator Douglas Moo says, so difficult is the tongue to control. So given to utter falsehood. To utter the biting, the slanderous, the harmful word. So prone to stay open when it should be closed, that the person who controls his mouth can control everything about himself. That's what James is saying in verse two. A godly person is, how would you fill that in? I was talking to some people in my neighborhood just to, just to kind of get a conversation going. I said, what, what would you say a godly person is like? You know, it reveals a lot about you how you answer that question. Somebody said non-judgmental. Well, that shows what your value is. What would you say a godly person is like? How would the Spirit of God in the inerrant Word of God fill in? If someone does this, then they are truly godly. The way the Spirit of God fills that in strikingly is simply this: they control their tongue. So point number one, I think, is well-established. All of us need all the help we can get in this area. All of us need all the help we can get in this area. The second point I want to make is more from verse one, and that is that the teachers among us need extra help in this area. The teachers among us need extra help here in this area. I think this is an important point because I I made some rough calculations this week. If you add up, if you add up all of the teachers at Racine Bible Church, I mean, I'm looking out. I'm not going to point at you and say your name, but I see several teachers there. I see several teachers in this section. I see several teachers in this section and in the section over there. If you add up all the teachers between children's ministry Uh, ABF leaders, youth leaders, various Bible studies for women, various Bible studies for men, various small groups. Easily, you're at over 100, easily. Teacher is an important role in the New Testament. It's a spiritual gift, according to 1 Corinthians 12, 28. It's a spiritual gift, according to Ephesians 4, verse 11. It's a requirement of an elder, according to 1 Timothy 3. And it's an office that's worthy, the Bible actually says in 1 Timothy 5.17, of double honor. Oh, but precisely, precisely, because it's a role that's worthy of honor, it becomes a role that some people who should never grasp for it actually grasp for that role. Because it's worthy of double honor. Out of pride, out of vanity, out of vain motives those who teach and use their tongue to teach can and will do massive harm to the church if they don't control their tongues. And so James says in verse one, not many should become teachers for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. It means we have a greater liability of judgment. Why do teachers have a greater liability of judgment? Because James 3 is saying, along with Romans 3, along with Proverbs 10, along with the rest of the Bible, that sins of the mouth are the most common sins and the hardest to control. So the teacher has a greater liability to judgment because the teacher is always doing this activity, which the Bible, uh, which the Bible indicates is the most dangerous activity we can do. Teachers are doing that activity more than others. They're speaking. And so they're going to be judged with a greater judgment. Because their ministry involves speaking, which is the hardest part of the human being to control, and which is the easiest part of the human life to indulge in sin over and over again, teachers are going to face a stricter judgment. Teachers have the most expensive rate of liability insurance. We're getting a new roof on the church now. I'm sure one of the things the deacons checked on was the liability insurance of the contractors that we have to do it. So if they fall off, you know, it's not, that, you know, we, we want them to be saved, but we, we also don't want some, some massive lawsuit because of this and that. And the other thing, think about the liability insurance of that uh, outfit just past Highway 11 on the interstate where they take people up and jump out of airplanes. <laughs> Skydiving instructions right there down the road. I wonder what their liability insurance is. Well, whatever it is, the Bible says that teachers should pay a higher premium for their insurance than those skydiving instructors. That's what this means. And if that's the case, then I think it's really important for us to establish together what faithful teaching is and how to be sure that faithful teachers will pass this strict text of, test of judgment. So I want to give you just uh, 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 three insights into what faithful teaching is. And I think these are important, number one, for those who teach, which is many of you, if not most of you. And second, I think this is important for everyone who listens to teaching, which is all of you. How do we know that teaching is faithful? Three simple uh, descriptions of faithful Bible teaching. Description number one. They're all going to start with a negative And then move to the positive. Number one, not the preferences and opinions the teacher brings to the text, but the truths and realities the teacher brings out of the text. That's faithful teaching. Number one, not the preferences and opinions. The teacher brings to the text, not the hobby horses and wishes and, oh, that would make a good point, and all all the preferences and opinions of the teacher. Not the preferences and opinions the teacher brings to the text, but the truths and realities the teacher brings out of the text. That's how to be sure that your teaching will be judged faithful. This is what's called expository preaching, exposing the meaning of the text, biblical exposition or expository preaching. Expository preaching derives the content of the preaching from the Bible. It accurately explains what the Bible says. In faithful Bible teaching, in faithful expository preaching, the Bible is the source of the message. The Bible is the substance of the message. In faithful Bible teaching, here's what happens. The text is the master and the teacher is a servant. In faithful expository preaching, uh, I don't use the text of Scripture to say my message. In faithful expository preaching, the Spirit of God uses the faithful teacher to declare the message of the Word of God. This has been compared to a diving board and a swimming pool. In some sermons, in some Bible studies, the Bible verse is a diving board, and we bounce on it once, and then we jump into the pool, which is, what does this mean to you? What do you feel like? Do you have a nice story? And we just swim around in all of our opinions and feelings and premonitions. But that's not faithful Bible teaching. In faithful Bible teaching, the text of Scripture is the pool. And once we start in on the sermon, once we start in on the teaching, we are always dealing with what the text says. I saw a clip this week. Maybe some of you saw it. It made its rounds on the Christian interwebs of, the, of Kanye West on the Joe Rogan show. I don't even know what the Joe Rogan show is, but I looked it up and it had 190 million downloads last month. Apparently, it's one of the most popular whatever it is. It's a YouTube thing or a podcast. I don't even know what it is. But, but Kanye West was on this program, and they asked him about the church that he was going to. This was last week. And apparently, in Placerita, California, where my son-in-law and my uh, daughter live, uh, this, that's where the church is that Kanye is going to, and that church is pastored by uh, a friend of a friend of mine who graduated, he graduated from the same seminary that I graduated from, from Massive Seminary in Southern California. And so he does expository preaching. And Kanye was explaining to Joe Rogan, Kanye said, this is an exact quote, but he said something like this. "Uh, A lot of sermons are sauce. It's a lot of emotion, a lot of heat, a lot of passion, and people like that in church. And Kanye said, I don't go to church for the sauce. I go for the meat of the word of God. And then he said, the church that I'm going to, the preacher is an expository preacher, which means that he brings the meaning out of the text rather than he has a bunch of good ideas and he just uses the Bible to bounce into his good ideas. I thought that was fascinating to hear that on this this, uh, program. Well, number one, faithful Bible teaching is not the... Preferences and opinions of the teacher, which they bring to the text, but the truths and realities the teacher brings out of the text. Faithful facet number two of faithful Bible teaching. Again, not, and then transition to the positive, not, sorry, not what the listeners want to hear, but what God has said we need to hear. Not what the listeners want to hear, but what God has said we need to hear. Preaching is the presentation of God's word. Preaching is not a a popularity uh, contest. Preaching is most certainly not the result of polling and what are your felt needs that you want us to talk about. Preaching is the presentation of the word of God. And preaching is the presentation of information for the purpose of transformation. Transformation. And preaching is the presentation of information in the Word of God for the purpose of transformation, and that transformation is painful. And we will not immediately welcome it. So a faithful preacher has to push through and do what is best for those that he cares about, rather than merely what they're asking him to do in the moment. In the moment, we're always going to ask you to withhold the knife but that may not be what we need long-term when the cancer needs to be excised. Some preachers get timid right here. Preaching is the presentation of information for the purpose of transformation. Some preachers get timid right here. They're willing to present information, but they're not willing to press through when they fuzz up against resistance to transformation. But that's why the Bible calls preaching sowing the seed what we want to see is a new fruit a new crop that's why the bible calls preaching uh, in in uh, where's in second corinthians taking captive in a warfare every thought that is against the lordship of jesus christ it's why preaching is called in the book of ezekiel tearing down strongholds the ministry of the word is exerc- exercised to this purpose and this is where preachers get into the wrong kind of humility for which they will be judged. People will be judged for their pride and commended for their humility. But in our day and age, we kind of flip this around, and, and some Christian teachers, they front a kind of humility for which God will judge them because they're too timid to just directly say what the Bible says and get in trouble for it. And that's a humility that Jesus finds distasteful. That's the wrong kind of humility and timidity. The worst Bible teachers are timid precisely where they fear that people will uh, disagree with them. It, it, It would be funny if it wasn't so sad that the worst Bible teachers are timid precisely because they are afraid that they will be understood and they will be disagreed with and they don't want that. So faithful Bible teaching has an absolutely uncompromising boldness to deliver what God has said. One of my historical heroes is Martin Luther. You know, Martin Luther had the spiritual gift of sarcasm. I don't know if you know that, but he did. I know many of you, you think you have that gift, but you don't. Only Martin Luther had it. He had the spiritual gift of sarcasm, and he... Uh, I was just reading uh, this little collection of his letters where he's going back and forth with Erasmus. And Erasmus is teaching the Bible and he's not doing a good job of it. He's being too timid and too humble and he's not just saying what the Bible says. And Luther's had enough. And so Luther writes to Erasmus this. Erasmus, shall the creator... Come down to you, his creature, and learn what it is that should be preached? What, Erasmus? Did the foolish and unwise God of heaven not know what to say until you, his instructor, decide what he should say? No. God's truth shall be spoken everywhere and in every sermon, come what may. We're here to deliver the truth of God's word, not to win a popularity contest. And the fear of the Lord delivers one from evil. Luther sounds very bold, and I'm sure he is very bold, but that is because Luther trembled before Almighty God. When you see someone who is bold and fearless, they are fronting, and that's a... That's a, that's a uh, a, that's a sort of a false boldness unless that man trembles before Almighty God because it is the fear of the Lord that leads to the deliverance from the fear of man and gives what is called a holy boldness. And This is what we need. Because Ezekiel 33 says, if I fear the people and I don't declare what they need to hear, their blood is on my hands. I am more afraid of that than I am of your angry rejection of me personally. This is where it comes from. The fear of the Lord and the fear of his judgment because James James chapter three verse one is true that I will face that judgment. Woe is me if I think your judgment of me is the one that I should fear. I fear God. And so the second point is that faithful Bible teaching doesn't give not what the listeners want to hear, but what God says we need to hear. And then point number three. This, uh, this is a good one, and hopefully it'll give you permission to uh, annoy me and pester me even more than you currently do, okay? Okay. Point number three, uh, faithful Bible teaching, speaking as the teacher, uh, does not put me above and protect me from feedback and criticism, but it puts me in a position to receive feedback and criticism if I'm a faithful Bible teacher, I do not view my role as teacher or my office as teacher, like don't strike the Lord's anointed or whatever, I don't don't view that role as putting me above and protecting me from feedback and criticism. But my role as teacher puts me in a position to receive healthy feedback and honest criticism. Human nature is such that anytime you're elevated or honored in a position as a teacher or a leader or whatever, that you'll be tempted to pride and vanity. And pride makes you want to crave compliments. And vanity makes you want to absolutely reject all criticism. Pride and vanity will always lead teachers to become defensive in the face of criticism, or to become devastated by criticism? Have you ever had a teacher or a boss who was always defensive in the face of criticism, or always deflated in the sense of criticism? Those are both manipulative tools to get me above a position where nobody will criticize me anymore, and they're both satanic. They're not godly. If you're always defensive of criticism, it's, you become that kind of person who's like, whatever the criticism is, your response is, well, well, what gives you the right? Well, you have your own issues. Well, why do I have to listen to you? You don't even know who you are. You don't know what the kind of pressure I'm under, blah, 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 blah. If you're devastated by criticism, then that's the sort of, you know, that's the sort of manipulative uh, vulnerability that says, well, then I guess I'll just give up. I, I'll just quit. I'm nothing. Rather than being defensive in the face of criticism or devastated by criticism, a godly teacher who's ready to face God's judgment receives criticism and learns from it. A mentor told me many years ago, and I have, I've always remembered this. I think I can say most of the time I've lived it, but certainly not all the time. But my mentor told me years ago when I was first learning how to preach, he said to me, It's so simple, but it unlocks something for me. He says, Spencer, if you become a teacher in the church, then that means you are a person who's always going to be up in front talking to them. Part of the deal is that gives every one of them the right to talk to you about you and about what you have said to them. Don't ever forget that. Don't ever forget that. He said, that's the way it works. So expect it, invite it, and live with it. And every time they talk to you, he told me one more thing. Every time they talk to you, he said, do not let their praise and their commendation fill you up. And do not let their criticism and their condemnation empty you out. You are filled up by the smile of almighty God in your life. And if you have that in the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're not, you're not going to go from wave to wave of either praise or condemnation. Then we need that. You, you want that in those who are in a, in a teaching position in your life. You want them to not be above feedback and criticism, but to receive it in a healthy way. And I, uh, you know, I, I hope, I, I, my intention is to invite that from you. I hope that I do. I hope that all of our teachers do, every ABF teacher, every youth leader. You know, they should receive our thanks, but they should also receive our our good feedback on what they're doing. So pray for your teachers. Pray for their courage and integrity. Pray for them to know the smile of God so they won't be washed to and fro by praises or condemnations. Pray for that Acts 20, 26, and 27 kind of clarity for them where the apostle was able to say, when he jumped on a boat to get out of town, he was able to say to them, I know that I'm innocent and your blood is not on my hands for I have proclaimed to you the whole counsel of God. Pray for that, for your teachers. Well, if the first point was that we all need all the help we can get, and the second point was the teachers, especially teachers, need a special amount of help, let's conclude with the third point, which is, where's the help? (laughs) Where's the help that we need? A couple of commitments that can help us. A couple of commitments that can give us the help that we need. Commitment number one, slow down and speed up. (laughs) Slow down and speed up. James chapter 1, verse 19. You know it, I hope. I know you don't do it because I don't, but I know you know it because I know it. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Oh, for a day, for a day in the life when I could be quick to hear and slow to speak. We got to slow down before we speak. We got to slow down before we speak. We need to pause before you post that thing on your social media Very wise to use that uh, draft folder. I know a couple of people who never, never post something right when they write it. They always wait an hour or two. That's a great idea. Pause before you post. Tremble and pray before you text that word of anger or correction. You know you can be right when you correct somebody. They can be wrong and you can be right. And you know that you can do it in a way that makes your rightness wrong and a way that makes their wrongness even worse. So pause and tremble before you offer that word. I'm not saying you don't offer it, but you offer it carefully. Be slow to speak. Take a deep breath before you hit send. The problem is you carry a grenade with the pin pulled out of it or almost all the way out of it in your mouth all the time. The problem is you carry around a grenade with the pin almost all the way out of it in your mouth all the time. And the problem is that last phrase all the time. The very fact that we ha- the very fact that we carry that around with us all the time makes us quick and uncareful and hurried in the way that we do it. But if we could really reckon with the fact that that grenade is there and the pin is almost all the way out, if we could really reckon with that fact moment by moment, then we would become slow to speak. So slow down, but secondly, speed up. And by speed up, I mean this. Oh, church, I am, I'm I'm not getting on my knees because you wouldn't be able to see me behind this wooden pulpit, but this is the point. This is what I mean by speed up. Oh, church, be quicker to forgive. Oh, be quicker to overlook. I'm not saying that person that said that mean thing to you is in the right, they are in the wrong. But what I am saying from the word of God is the word of God says here that multiple people in the church will do that to you over the course of your life because no one, no elder goes without sinning with his tongue. Nobody in the church is sinless with their tongue. So people in the church are going to wound you with their tongues. You can't avoid that, but what you can do is you can become a person who responds to that in a Christ-like manner eager to forgive, quick to forget, keep no record of wrongs kind of way. This is one of the things that, is, that gets to me the worst about 2020. I don't, this is not a political or a scientific statement. This is just a spiritual reality. I am not afraid of COVID-19. I'm not afraid of dying. But I am very afraid that Christians are giving up on each other because of the crazy stuff that we're saying about COVID-19 and masks and and this and that and the other thing. We need to be quick to forgive each other and believe the best about each other. There have been a few times in my ministry, (laughs) there have been a few times in my ministry when somebody really wronged me. They were super mean to me. And they knew it, and I knew it. This is kind of good. There have been a few times when a member of the church was mean to me, and they knew it, and I knew it. And then, say, that same week, or the very next week, that church member needed me. You know what I mean? To visit them or to do something for them. And I was able to go and do that for them. And those are some of my favorite, those are some of my favorite memories. Not because when I did that, it made them feel bad. I don't want them to feel bad. I'm honest before the Lord. Those are some of my favorite memories because when I was able to do that, it was able to show that Jesus is real and that he has forgiven my sin and that I'm not a human being who forgives because of a Mr. Rogers niceness. I am a human being who forgives because the Son of God bled and died for me. And I'm able to forgive, not out of my human generosity, but out of the divine spirit of Jesus who dwells in me. So as you slow down and speed up, the other helpful truth to realize is this, right? This is what we've been saying all along. It's what James is saying here. As you slow down and speed up, remember this you cannot do it. And God can do it in you. You cannot do it. James says, no one can handle this. No one can be sinless with their tongue. You cannot do it. But God can. The Spirit of Jesus can do that in you. And so when you're filled with the Spirit of God... Every day you start to pray, Psalm one forty one. Oh Lord, set a guard, O Lord, over my lips that I might not sin with my tongue. You pray every day, Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any hurtful word on my lips and lead me in your way of righteousness. And so you lean on the Holy Spirit. You fill your heart and your mind with God's word. I'm just telling you to not resist the Holy Spirit. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit. But listen to Him and follow Him because though you cannot, the Spirit of Jesus can. And Jesus died and rose again and ascended to send His very Spirit to be with you and enable you to do this. Let's pray. We bow for prayer, give you a moment to confess your sin. The Bible says in 1 John that if we say we have no sin, we make God a liar and his truth is not in us, but that if we confess our sin, he's faithful to forgive it. And our text in James 3 says that only a perfect person doesn't sin with their tongue. So confess. Some of you have a habit of uh, an easy lie, and you're pretty habitually deceptive with your speech. Some of you in your anger and frustration, you hurl cruel words at your kids or your parents or your spouse or your friends. You need to confess that. We need to confess our sin. Lord God, we have unclean lips. We dwell among a people of unclean lips. We confess our sin to you. And with that holy coal, with that sovereign blood of the Son of God, we count on you to forgive our sin, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So as we confess our sin, we ask you to lead us and guide us, establish in us sweeter habits of speech, make us slow to speak, quick to forgive, and in every moment, dependent upon you, sweet Holy Spirit of God, a marvelous work in us for Jesus' sake. Amen. To find out more about our ministry, contact us at racinebible.org. Thank you for listening.